welcome to the podcast. I'm Jan Orman. This podcast comes from webinar 42 in Black Dog Institute's e-mental health in practice series. In it, we focused on domestic violence, which we believe is a hidden factor behind many mental health problems, the problems that we see in primary care. Our aim was to raise awareness of the extent of the problem and to encourage health practitioners to feel confident about addressing the problem always, but especially now in the time of COVID-19. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we all meet and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. My guests in the webinar included Professor Kelsey Hegarty, a GP and academic from the University of Melbourne who has a special interest in domestic violence. I asked her what sparked that interest. I was a GP in inner city Brisbane and doing a lot of mental health. I would have said I'm a touchy-feely sort of a GP and was reading in the newspaper about the one in four figures and thinking to myself, you know, this back in the late 90s, thinking I, I'd, I don't see people with domestic violence. I see a lot of depression and anxiety and um, thinking, oh, what's happening here? And uh, someone I was teaching at the time at the University of Queensland and someone suggested I do some research around the barriers and facilitators to asking and engaging on this issue. And that was it. I was sold on it because it's as common as diabetes or asthma and we don't do much about it. Also with me was psychologist Carmel O'Brien. I've probably been, it's nearly three decades that I've been working with family violence and because a lot of my career has been with community, in the community sector, uh, places like child protection, the women's prison, um, uh, government funded couple services, um, I ended up often uh, finding that family violence was uh, part of what I was dealing with and I'm always been fascinated by the recovery, the clinical recovery process for women and children, which has been my focus. Uh, but also I find the work absolutely inspirational because of the courage that I see uh, in all the work I do with those survivors. We also welcome to the panel Fiona. Fiona is a survivor of a long domestic violence relationship and now an advocate for other women experiencing domestic violence. Fiona was able to give us some incredibly useful insight from her lived experience perspective. As um, Jan said, I was in a domestic violence relationship for 28 years. And when I left, I thought if I could help any other woman, I would. I had no idea what I would do or how I would do it. Mm -hmm. um, I have actually finally found my voice. And the my um, thing is to actually get across to the community that it, being in domestic violence relationship is not actually how you think it will be and that there are many other forms of domestic violence just as in the classic um, physical violence. I'd like to acknowledge that there'll be survivors in the audience. As Fiona said, it's not a particular look for a survivor. Um, we know it's prevalent in health professionals and in fact maybe more prevalent than in the community because often we are um, at people are as survivors want to uh, help others. It's more than physical violence. It is around psychological and sexual harm. And this is the World Health Organization definitions. And certainly um, emotional abuse about harassment and intimidation and sexual abuse. 
And included in that more recently has been reproductive coercion around the fact that someone can be forced to be pregnant or forced to have a termination. And underpinning a lot of it for women is um, coercive control. Um, and uh, that can be through technology facilitated. And in the mental health and substance abuse setting, it can be around coercive control of treatment or recovery. We should be, we should be seeing it frequently because it, it is there. And I'm going to try and convince you of that and no matter what setting you're in. These are the figures from the Personal Safety Survey. And I'd like to acknowledge at this point that there are male victims. If you look at those figures, there are male victims. There are also people in same-sex relationships. There's also other family members who perpetrate. Um, and so therefore, today we're concentrating mostly on the evidence of intimate partner violence against women, not to negate any of these other victims, but to say that any form of abuse and violence is, is, is not condoned. Um, but we can see that it's gendered and we've got more women than men experiencing physical or sexual violence, closer for emotional abuse. And in terms of sexual violence, it's, it, it's quite gendered. The figures show that since the age of 15, one in six women and one in 16 men have experienced sexual or physical violence by a current or former partner. One in four women and one in six men have experienced emotional abuse. And if we look at general practice, one in 10 women attending, um, sitting in the waiting room, have experienced a combined physical, emotional and or sexual abuse in a 12-month period. For a full-time GP, that's around five women per week. So if any of you are working in general practice, I'm sure you're not seeing that. Um, and so most aren't identified because nine in 10 women have never been asked by a GP. If we talk about the people who are presenting with depression, again, from pretty good research across randomly chosen general practices, we have one in four women. So, and that's probably the more severe combined type of abuse. I think you might find that the figures were even higher in people with treatment resistant depression, Kelsey, because we haven't teased out the underlying issues. That's correct. I mean, but just even scoring on a Beck depression score in the last two weeks, if you ask about abuse, you will get such a shock how many have experienced this. So domestic violence is going undetected in the community and in our practices. But how do we ask about it, especially now during the pandemic? There are reports internationally about a rise of family violence during COVID. Uh, people who are living with someone who is very coercive controlling are essentially um, can be thought of really as hostages. And so if you're trying to do a telehealth session, it might be necessary to know whether it's safe for them to speak, whether there is a a need for a safe word or a safe sign if they need to change the subject um, or end, end the session. So there are additional um, pressures on survivors because there's literally no escape from the situation they're in and there's no access to the usual supports that ameliorate their situation day to day. Uh, and also, of course, there are, um, uh, or there's the um, lockdowns and restrictions of movement, which means that uh, it's very difficult for those for those women to seek help. And you have to remember, and I think this is, you know, reflected in the figures you're saying, Kelsey, that 
one of the reasons that you're not identifying it is that um, often people don't disclose it, but also um, women tend to minimise the, the violence that they're experiencing. Uh, perpetrators tend to minimise the violence that they are perpetrating. So uh, there are certainly women who may be living in a situation of what we would call family violence who don't themselves yet identify as being in that category. And that's why the way you ask the questions is so important. But there are certainly additional safety issues during COVID. Mm. And uh, I remember my first survey where I asked people had they had knives and guns held against them, behavioural sorts of items, and some women ticked that. And then I said, so um, have you been in an abusive relationship? And they said no. So I think, I, I think that, that it's actually those labelling words that don't work. Although it's what we would all look for and recognise, the evidence tells us that most women don't present with physical injury. Presentations related to domestic violence include presentations for chronic pain, delayed care, mental health issues and a wide variety of medical presentations, including headache, pelvic pain, bowel disorders, pregnancy difficulties, including low-weight babies and prematurity, and high-risk behaviours. Strangely, the small amount of research we have on men who use domestic violence is that they have similar presentations. And of course, we mustn't forget the children. And Jan, you, you were saying, you, you think that sometimes these sorts of presentations are ones that you do remember around children. Actually, the most common presentations I've seen have been the physical injury presentations and the presentations via children, where the children are soiling mm. or bedwetting or behaving badly or developing an eating disorder or any of those sorts of things. I wonder how all this resonates for Fiona. I have three adult grown children. Um, the eldest son started drinking at quite a young age and had an ulcer by the time he was 18. Um, and he's very remote and very cut off emotionally. Um, my youngest child has body dysmorphia, um, high functioning anxiety and also PTSD. And my middle child, who was the, um, the focus out of the three of them, of the husband's um, rage and anger, um, he started with behaviour at quite a young age and he was doing some self-harming. He was unbeknownst to me drinking and doing quite a few drugs as well to cope with the, you know, the pressures at home. Um, at 17, he took a massive Panadol overdose and was being flown to a hospital for a replacement liver. Um, and, and he then proceeded to go on to um, more suicide attempts um, and um, since I've finally left, unfortunately, he's doing perpetrator behaviour towards me and I've actually had to threaten him with a um, restraining order. Yeah, that's a very sad story, Fiona, but not um, untypical. So um, this idea of intervening or early engagement that we can all do um, to at the earliest point in time to be working with someone um, on a pathway to safety and healing um, gives us a constellation of where we should ask and um, now we're going to go on to um, talk about how we should ask and the fundamental, as Carmel was talking about, is asking alone, which is a challenge in telehealth, but we're all learning how to do that. Um, and funneling from those general questions, from how's your relationship, what happens when you argue, through to more specific questions um, about behaviours and feelings. Are they afraid? Have they be, had their um, 
controlled their day-to-day -day activities, has the partner or a family member threatened to hurt or slapped, hit, kicked or otherwise physically hurt. And if, if you are getting a disclosure, we're going to talk about what sort of response. But it, it is important to think immediately about, is this a person who's like um, chest pain and is, is a heart attack <laughs> for the GPs in the audience. Um, but probably for those who are doing mental health a lot is, is like with suicide, is there an immediate suicide? So we have some simple questions around, do you feel safe when you leave here today? And do you have any immediate concerns about the safety? And Carmel, if someone said yes to those latter questions, what sort of uh, thing should people be trying to do? Okay, so you're talking about immediate risk. Yeah, now. yeah. And, uh, I think what is really important is that we have the confidence to follow the rabbit down the rabbit hole, ask some more questions, find out some more about the context and find out what it is the person thinks will help them, what would... What can we do to be helpful, to help keep them safe? Uh, it's, I think it's important to keep them in the driving seat and to let them know that we're willing to take action if necessary. If, if you are certainly worried about someone's immediate risk, the first person to tell is them um, because they, they may not know that you, you either realise that or may not have uh, thought about it themselves. But most survivors every day are doing things to protect themselves. There's no such thing really as a passive survivor. And so they're the ones with the nuanced view about what would be the most supportive thing to help them. If but, it, but if they say, I don't feel safe to leave here today, what would they, what would you do, Carmel? Um, uh, well, you'd, I, I would say, um, uh, talk to them about whether we need to call the police. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that there is a crisis response that's actually very well organised, isn't there, Carmel, in terms of the police are better trained now and also Safe Steps is in Victoria, but it, each state has a crisis. Correct. Um, if if yeah. not the police, they may prefer perhaps to be linked with a domestic violence service. Mm. So then the questions are, you know, how would we feel about talking to people who perpetrate, you know, and, you know, again, you do the funnelling. Do you think, you know, from what happens when you argue, do you think she's ever scared? Have you ever done something you've later regretted? Are you worried about your behaviour? I want to ask you some direct questions. You know, have you ever hit her, you know? And if they're fathers, the beginning of motivational interviewing can be, you know, how did you hope being a father would be? How would you like your children to think of you? Did you respect or fear your own father? What would your children say about you? Would they say they respect or fear you? Now, this isn't for everybody. No, people aren't going to feel comfortable working in this area and obviously recommend getting a lot more training about perpetrators before you moved into this. But I think it's just illustrating to you that these there are simple questions that can assist you with discussing this area. And usually in the area of perpetrators, you're really trying to encourage um, help seeking. Fundamental to working with perpetrators is your belief that they are responsible for their behaviour and that they can change. So even communicating that to someone can be a light bulb moment for them. So Fiona, I'm just going to go back. At, at what point did you, would you have responded yes to someone asking you about it if they did it in a really nice, empathic, non-judgmental way? 
Um, well, I'm being very open and honest and saying I wouldn't have said anything because <laughs> I am one of those people that didn't realise they were in a domestic violence relationship because it had been done so covertly to, for so many years that I actually had no idea. One thing I did know was that I was actually petrified. Yeah. So I would not have gone, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have answered the question at all. I would have just gone, oh, no, everything's fine, everything's wonderful. Um, in the end, I was the person that brought up to my um, GP at the time that I thought I was in a domestic violence relationship. And this was actually once I'd finally left. Mm. Yeah. And I think uh, what we do know is, though, if you don't ask, like in, in evidence, it's it's that women are two and a half times more likely to tell you, like like way more um, than if you don't ask. And But it's when they're ready, as Fiona just um said and sometimes that's a particular trigger that might do it yeah jan i was just going to say that by asking you demonstrate your own willingness to hear the answer yeah. don't you yeah and people say it well i don't want to ask because i don't know what to do so we're going to go on and do that but i think that you are signaling something whether it's a poster in the waiting room whether it's um asking these questions and uh maybe it's the next time they tell you you know, it, 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 it doesn't have to be that time. The listening and the validation is the most important thing. Um, for a woman to um, even come out and say, you know, in, in my case, I was petrified of telling the doctor because I was petrified of the ramifications. What was going to happen to me? Would he tell my husband? Would he tell other people? Um, I was absolutely petrified. So the listening and the validation and that, that in that moment and in that second, that person believes in you and that you are in a totally safe environment. The World Health Organization suggests we use the mnemonic LIVES in our work in this field. L-I-V-E-S. L for listen closely with empathy and without judgment. I for inquire to assess her needs and concerns. V for validate. E for enhancing safety through discussion of ways she can protect herself. And S for support helping her connect with information, services and social support. You're trying to give choice and control. This is from um, a qualitative metasynthesis of all interviews and focus group studies with survivors. And they wanted lives, so you, you have got that right. They want listening and validation. But they also want choice and control, action and advocacy recognition and understanding and they want some emotional connection some of them called it kindness fiona how would you have felt if you had got this sort of response do you think um i think i would have been overwhelmed um to also from women who have no choice and no control to be given the control but also to be involved in the discussion about how you're going to do stuff you know, how are you going to instigate change? What services are you going to get? I remember um, at one stage going um, to seek about could I leave my house and how would I do it? And I had someone from a shelter who absolutely petrified the living daylights out of me back saying, oh, yes, well, we'll whip you out of home and we'll put you in a house <laughs> way over the other side of the state and you won't be able to get to you. And all I could think of was how are my children going to get to school? So what's the best indicator of risk of death in domestic violence situations? but I'm just going to comment on the sexual assault part because it's probably almost as high as strangulation. Planning to leave or uh, indicating you will leave is uh, a very uh, high-risk activity for a lot of survivors and it's certainly the time, the time at which you may be at greatest risk. 
but in terms of assessing a woman's safety, you absolutely need her assessment. As, as psychoeducation will help and you can come to an assessment together, but you absolutely need her input and it is vital to having any kind of realistic assessment of her safety. And this can be translated into a brief risk assessment. So I think it's getting sort of more comfortable with trying this way of doing it. Um, and it's to really try and work out and work with the woman to say, well, you've said yes to some of these. I'm really concerned about you. And I would like you to get to someone who's more um, specialised in this safety area. And I'd be happy to help you with that. Well, a safety plan's really a um, opportunity to sit down and think about what might help this person on their path to safety. So uh, being pl a planned exit is always better than an emergency exit from a family violence relationship. And certainly some women plan exits for years and some men. Uh, so this includes things like having a list of emergency numbers, perhaps having uh, clothes or money uh, somewhere safe, perhaps with a neighbour, a relative or somewhere else. Um, being able to identify where you might go and who you might call if you need help. Uh, the other is, of course, that um, sometimes safety planning includes almost a step-by-step -step, um, way of keeping yourself safe this week or today. So not make sure your car keys are on the way to the car, not back in the bedroom, that kind of thing. Uh, mostly though, it's based in a really common sense discussion of helping someone think through uh, and being able to openly talk to someone about that can be really helpful. And it also can calm people who are quite distressed. You know, what is the next best step? Uh, and how, what, how, what, do we, what can I do as a professional to help you in that? Fiona, what happened in the end for you? What did you and your counsellor come up with to protect you? We worked out that the most sensible place for me to um, let him know that I didn't want to be in the relationship anymore was to do it in a counselling session where I would be totally protected. Um, and we did go through um, some stages of what I was going to do and how I was going to protect myself. So I then went home to the family home and proceeded to live downstairs. But the escalate, the violence escalated over the next couple of days to levels that I had never seen it before. And I actually thought he was going to kill me. So I literally left in two days and threw everything in the car and just left. Yeah. And so this, this idea of having something hidden or packed or ready to go, because sometimes these things can suddenly escalate, you know, is important. Carmel, how does a person heal from all this? There's certainly a lot of discussion about whether someone can heal while they're still in a situation mm. where they're unsafe. And I'm not sure that they can, I'm not sure heal is the right word, but make progress, certainly. Mm. And part of that is I think first repairing what I'd call the existential damage of giving somebody a sense that they are valuable, that they're worth being angry about, worth protecting and deserve a better life. And you see this when you talk to people that often they'll move from everything's my fault to I don't think I deserve this. Uh, so um, the 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 impact of living with someone who's very coercive and controlling usually is uh, pretty much like what we used to call brainwashing, where their view of you replaces your view of you and it's mm. not 
no longer positive. And because social isolation is such a big factor, it means there's often not a reality check to reassure the person that actually they are okay or they will recover. You can help relieve symptoms. You can help people grieve for uh, what they have lost. You can help keep the uh, hope alive by letting people know that they're not alone, that what they're experiencing is common, that uh, people understand it, that people recover from it, that people become safe, and that there is another life possible for them. Provided that women get the right support, in my experience, they make good decisions for themselves. And we, you know, I see my job as working in collaboration with them to find out what is the next best step for them and, and to have patience to hang in there until they re, um, find the right time to make that step. Kelsey, is there any evidence that this kind of trauma-specific care that we've been talking about is helpful? We've just reviewed all the psychological treatments for in the context of intimate partner violence for Cochrane. And in fact, they work, they work quite well to reduce symptoms, but they may not address the safety issues or reduce the violence. It's important to remember that just helping a woman reduce her symptoms will empower her and allow her to think more clearly about her situation and what to do about it. Trauma-informed care will go a step further to help in this situation and there are great places to learn about trauma-informed care, including courses run by the Blue Knot Foundation. Kelsey says that all health practitioners have at least the basic skills to do this work. The challenges for practitioners include lack of time, but you don't need to try to do it all in one session, seeing the partner as well. But there's great guidance about this in the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners White Book. That's a family and domestic violence handbook which is available online at the RACGP website. There's also the issue of mandatory reporting of children at risk and this is best done collaboratively with the survivor. There's the problem of lack of confidence in your own skills and lack of knowledge about local referral options. And of course there's the issue of any personal experience of abuse that you might have had. What did you hope for when you sought help, Fiona? At the time, it was incredibly difficult for me to even get to a, um, a mm. GP because my ex-husband wouldn't actually let me go. Um, so even trying to get to the counsellor was also very difficult. Um, I think the hardest thing for maybe for a, a GP is, do am I confident doing this? You know, what happens if I ask this question and then she says no? Well, uh, my theory is... You know, the worst she can say is no. If she is in one of these kind of relationships, it may start that conversation in her head where she might start to think about her partner's behaviour towards her. And yeah. if, if they say yes and he's thinking or he or she is thinking, well, I don't even know how to talk about this, you could be open and say, you know, we're all human beings. I don't know about this, but I can Google some stuff or you could come back in another, you know, in two days and we'll get this sorted. The fact that someone's on your side, the fact that there's someone there is actually going to help you is huge. The statistics show that 50% of women don't tell anybody about their situation and of those who do tell someone, most tell friends or family members. Next in line are health professionals. Uh, I hope we have convinced you that you can be ready to do this. If you don't 
understand the referral system in your local area um, and the GPs could go onto Health Pathways to have a look at that. Or if you don't have protocols around or discuss how to do mandatory reporting of child abuse, if you don't have a way um, of caring for your own health, then you're less likely to do it. But what we ideally want is, is a very ready practitioner who can do these things that can ask and give the lives response, that's empathic, responding to their needs, acknowledging the experience and behaviours, safety planning, options for support, follow up and help with self-management resources and referrals. So Fiona, if you'd got that, what, what would you have thought? Uh, probably that I won the lottery. Um, <laughs> I would have been extremely happy. Um, I was pretty much on my own. I felt very alone. I felt very isolated. I don't have any family. So the decision to do this on my own, and I had no follow-up services even when I left, it was very frightening. There are many online resources that can help you, including the 1800RESPECT website and helpline, the RACGP White Book that we mentioned earlier, the Safer Families Centre, that's www.saferfamilies.org.au, and the Men's Referral Service, which is a website and phone line for men who use violence in their relationships. There are several apps worth knowing about, including DAISY, which lists all the support services across Australia by area, and SUNNY, an app to help women with disability learn about violence in relationships. There's also a short online course from the University of Melbourne called Identifying and Responding to Domestic Violence that might be of interest to you. And just a reminder that this work can be quite demanding for you as a practitioner. Be sure you're well supported and if you need some help finding support, I'd like to recommend you download an app called The Essential Network, that's T-E-N or 10 for short. It's an app made especially for practitioners to guide them to the support they need at all levels, including peer support through the Hand in Hand Network. I hope you've enjoyed and benefited from listening to this podcast. And if you need help yourself, don't forget about the 1800 Respect Line and Lifeline on 131114.